Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC. In June 2017, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and a handful of other countries broke diplomatic ties with Qatar. They imposed an economic boycott and a blockade that made it difficult for Qatar to import food. They accused Doha of supporting terrorism cozying up to Iran and fomenting unrest in the region with Qatar's Al Jazeera news network. Qatar dismissed the accusations as a campaign of lies. Our sovereignty is a red line. We don't accept anybody interfering in our sovereignty. Sheikh Tamim of Qatar, when he took over the throne from his father, uh, pledged to change the practices of Qatar. And now the UAE minister said they broke our trust and it's going to be very difficult to rebuild it. I think it's an accumulation of uh, Qatar's behavior in the region uh, and especially I would say over the last period very very huge logistical financial support for extremist groups to uh, support also to some The Saudi alliance made a set of 13 demands on Qatar. These included cutting ties with the Muslim Brotherhood, closing Al Jazeera, downgrading diplomatic relations with Iran and closing a Turkish military base in Qatar. The blockade cost Qatar considerable hardship. It had to reroute Qatar Airways flights over Iran, rely on Turkey for basic food supplies, and at one point the country even had to fly in thousands of cows to boost milk supplies. Overall though, Doha was able to weather the pressure. Then, in early January 2021, after a GCC conference, Saudi Arabia and Qatar issued a joint communique saying the crisis was over. More than three years after Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain and Egypt imposed a blockade on Qatar, finally a breakthrough. An agreement was reached to open the land and maritime borders between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the state of Qatar starting tonight. It's far from clear, though, that the disagreements at the core of the dispute are resolved. 
Qatar hasn't met any of the 13 demands from the Saudi-led coalition. It still backs the Muslim Brotherhood's local branches across the region. This puts it in direct competition with the Emirates, who view political Islam as a principal threat. So is the GCC dispute actually over? Or have the Gulf monarchies simply swept their disagreements under the rug? What does it mean for the conflicts across the region where they're entangled? How are they factoring in a new US administration, one that might yet return to the nuclear deal with Iran? To talk about all this, we're joined by Dina Esfandiari, Crisis Group Senior Middle East Advisor. Dina's worked for years on Gulf security and foreign relations. Dina, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Dina, tell us first, what was this dispute originally about? So firstly, disputes within the Gulf Arab states are nothing particularly new. Um, They've always happened, but they've always happened behind closed doors, never as open as they did in this particular situation. Basically, over the course of the last few years um, leading up to the rift, they had increasingly developed opposing foreign policy goals in the region. We already saw in 2014 uh, a little disagreement where um, some of the same countries had recalled their ambassadors from Doha and actually cut ties with Qatar then already. This crisis was theoretically resolved, but in practice, tensions really continued to simmer below the surface um, up until the 2017 rift. It basically demonstrated a new, more active, more belligerent foreign policy on the part of the Saudis and the Emiratis. The rift, in my opinion, was largely driven by the Emiratis. Uh, The Emiratis are profoundly anti-Islamist because they view it as um, opposing their model of moderate Islam. And they were getting increasingly frustrated with Doha's support of Islamist groups in the region. Uh, It was in direct opposition to what the Emiratis were trying to achieve in the region. The rift was also made possible by the Trump administration's inconsistent policies in the region, um, and it rapidly became entrenched. It stayed cold in the Gulf, Uh, but it was exported beyond their borders um, to other arenas in the region and beyond. If that's the case with the Emiratis, what was in it for the Saudis? What was their uh, sense of pushing this this break with Qatar? So the Saudis, too, have been uh, having a more assertive foreign policy uh, in the region. And for them, they're also seriously concerned about Iran's role in the region. Um, And Doha had had relations with Iran in the past. It had always been kind of sitting on the fence and hadn't necessarily followed in Riyadh's lead in terms of constraining the Iranian threat. At least that's how it was perceived in Riyadh. And so, uh, and so for Saudi Arabia and for its uh, under, under the new leader, Mohammed bin Salman, um, it made sense to pursue a little bit more of an aggressive policy against Doha to make sure that it would get in line and follow what the Emiratis and the Saudis were trying to do in the region. So, Dina, why then the supposed rapprochement in January 2021, especially given, you know, as we said up top, Qatar has in reality failed to meet any of the demands that the Saudis and the Emiratis made? The Saudis actually expressed willingness, um, or at least signaled willingness, to talk about uh, resolving the rift as early as 2019. Um, We have to remember that their image was uh, somewhat battered, to put it mildly, by the Khashoggi murder. murder. And um, they were stretched thin because of their involvement in the region, including in in Yemen. And I think they were slowly realizing that nothing much had been achieved as a result of this rift. Uh, They really had started to realize the limit of this approach 
that they had adopted vis-a-vis -vis Qatar. After all, Qatar's behavior didn't really change um, even after a couple of years of the blockade. In fact, it, rem it remained pretty defiant. And then you have the context of the significant economic downturn in the region, the pandemic, of course, uh, which also has uh, even greater economic effects. So it made sense to start to pursue a resolution of this crisis. It really only came to fruition, though, when uh, the Trump administration expressed renewed interest at the end of his presidency to, to help resolve this, uh, this problem. The other reason um, for it dragging out so long, given that the Saudis had expressed interest as early as 2019 to resolve it, was again because the Emiratis had decided that they didn't see any point in resolving in helping resolve this crisis. They really wanted to maintain that pressure on Doha in order to get something um, from the Qataris, particularly in relation to those 13 demands. The, uh, the Al-Ula declaration of January 2021, when the, when the rift was formally ended, uh, was very much welcome. It, it was an important step in de-escalating amongst the GCC states. But ultimately, as you said, it really didn't address the core issues that were at the heart of this crisis. Let's come to those core issues in a moment. But Dina, you mentioned the, the role of the Trump administration both at the beginning in, you know, in some ways fueling the crisis. I mean, initially, the, the sort of support that the Trump administration lent to the Saudis, this seemingly unconditional support, played some role, if I understand it right, in emboldening them, fueling the crisis, a crisis that really didn't serve U.S. interests at all, given that the U.S. also has very close ties to Qatar, the big base in Qatar. Why then did the Trump administration take so long to try and walk it back? And why were they able to walk it back when they did? of reasons. I think firstly, um, one of the reasons why this unconditional-ish support to the Saudis made the Saudis pursue the policy it did was also because I think the Trump administration didn't think that a rift could happen and didn't think that it, if it did, it would be that big of a deal ultimately. Uh, I just think that most people weren't expecting the disagreement to turn into a full-blown public rift that involved a blockade of a country. Um, over the course of several years, uh, I think the Trump administration realized that, that the rift was against its own interests, it was against Gulf interests, uh, and it really wasn't leading anywhere. And also, I think as President Trump was preparing to leave office, um, it really comes down to legacy. You have to start thinking about what, are, what, what do you leave behind? Um, I also think that actually the incoming Biden administration played a role in that the Saudis uh, and the Emiratis, to a certain extent, were also starting to get a little bit nervous about the idea that they wouldn't have that unconditional support from D.C. anymore. So it was time for them to sort out their differences amongst themselves. So, Dina, given that these underlying disagreements continue, particularly as between Emirati approaches and that of the Qataris, does this really signal an end to the dispute between those two countries? The short answer to that is no. The disagreements remain, but they also remain at multiple levels. Um, it's that the, the disagreement is very much entrenched at a societal level, um, which is new. Uh, again, previous disagreements within the Gulf Arab states never really saw their own populations being pitted against one another. In this particular instance, they were. Families were separated. They weren't able to see each other. Travel was blocked. Um, and, and I think that means that populations won't forget easily. The Qataris became very nationalistic 
uh, and, and very supportive of their government's policies vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Emiratis and the Saudis. And that kind of thing, you're not going to be able to get rid of so easily. Uh, again, economically, it's good news that the rift has ended, but you're unlikely to see a return to the same level as integration of integration amongst the GCC states uh, as before, because Qatar will have learned its lesson uh, and has spent the last few years developing bilateral relations and diversifying itself. So it would never find itself in the same situation as it did during this rift. And finally, as we said before, uh, the, the agreement didn't resolve the core foreign policy and ideological differences at the heart of this disagreement. There was no mention of Qatar's foreign policy. Uh, it, the agreement didn't happen as a result of, of a convergence of their views and policies. Uh, in fact, in the days after, the Emiratis um, came out and made some public statements about how problems amongst themselves still existed. Uh, they did restore things like flights, but they didn't restore diplomatic relations. Um, so ultimately, those tensions are still there. Could we talk a little bit about sort of what Emirati policy in the region now looks like after the declaration that the crisis is over in January? On the one hand, there's still a loyal government in Egypt. The Emirates has, has these improved ties with Israel. And yet on the other, you know, recent events in Libya, uh, after Turkey's intervention, you've now got a government much friendlier to Turkey. The Emirati ally there, Khalifa Haftar, is looking much weaker. How does Abu Dhabi now, looking out uh, on the region at the moment, how, how does it see things and, and how does it view its priorities? The Emiratis have had a, a very visible growing assertiveness in their foreign policy, both in the region and beyond. Um, and we've seen that over the course of, I would argue, the last decade, perhaps even a little bit more, but really forcefully since, uh, since the Arab Spring of 2011. This assertiveness is visible through their military buildup, their willingness to, to draw on their uh, new weapons and, and military and, uh, and diplomatic know-how. And they've been involved uh, more assertively in the region to increase their influence, to sway politics to their own advantage, and really to pursue their own goals, even when they don't align with those of their allies and partners. And I think that's what's key for the Emiratis. Um, up until uh, 2011, it's not that they followed the lead of others, but um, but they everything that they did was very much in line with what their allies and their partners, so mainly Saudi Arabia and the US, wanted of them. Today, that's not so much the case anymore. And from their perspective, this assertiveness is paying off. Uh, so we might see it differently, but they think it's paying off. If you look at, for example, their involvement in Yemen, uh, they initially got in to support Saudi Arabia, but ultimately they were really pursuing their own goals um, to secure the southern part of the country, to fight uh, Islamists and Al-Qaeda in um, Yemen. And ultimately, they ended up pulling out uh, most of their presence in February 2020, but they didn't pull out because they thought they had failed. They pulled out because they thought our objectives have been achieved. We don't need to be there anymore. Rather than staying there uh, and getting bogged down in this conflict, we're going to pull out and focus our attention elsewhere. And you see that a little bit with, uh, with some of the other arenas that they've been involved with over the course of the last little while. Um, you also see that they're uh, quite bold and quite willing to uh, potentially upset elements of their own public in the pursuit of their own foreign policy. And uh, a good example of that is the Normalization Accords 
with Israel. So again, the Emiratis were working quite closely with the Israelis, and they have been for, for quite a while now. So that's nothing new. But the fact that they were willing to make it public and the fact that they're now so openly pursuing closer ties with Israel, again, that's a, that's a bold move uh, on the part of a Gulf Arab country. Sabina, can you contextualize a bit for us the normalization with Israel and, as you said, the, the sort of surprising publicity around that normalization? What, how does that fit within this approach to foreign policy? And how do you think the, the assessment and the calibration will see that in terms of relations with Israel moving forward? I think they were doing the bulk of the work uh, that they were hoping to do with the Israelis beforehand, before normalization was announced. Um, so for them, it was more a question of of publicizing it to to really show that they're that they're a confident country. Um, they're not afraid of what their domestic uh, public opinion thinks about this kind of thing, um, and uh, and they're. Uh, they're a trailblazer because they're they're happy to do this kind of thing. They're happy to to make peace um, with a country that that the rest of the Arab world uh, has really really struggled with making peace with. Um, ultimately, normalization will really pave the way for greater economic co- cooperation between the Israelis and the Emiratis. Um, tourism between the two countries has has been boosted uh, in unparalleled ways, and also you're kind of paving the way for. Um, a uh, defense cooperation uh, and and yeah general cooperation in the military military sphere, which again is kind of um, unparalleled when it comes to uh, Arab countries dealing with Israel. And Dina, you, you talked about the sort of recalibration and moving out of Yemen. Do you think that something similar has happened in Libya? That Emiratis saw that the wind was blowing against them, saw how much Turkey was prepared to put into Libya and realized that actually, you know, it was sort of a, a lost cause in a way and they better redirect the resources elsewhere. Is, is that what happened? Absolutely. Um, I think generally they're, I mean, they've now been pursuing this assertive foreign policy in the region for almost a decade, actually exactly a decade since it's been 10 years since the Arab Spring. And so they're kind of taking stock of what they've achieved, um, how they've achieved it, thinking about, okay, how should we now pursue the rest of our foreign policy in the next 10 years? I don't think, again, that they see it as a failure. They're just seeing it as, okay, this hasn't worked out exactly in the way that we want to. How can we ensure that it does? Um, and so they're they're taking a step back to, to really take stock of where they are um, and then decide what it is that they want to do next. So, Dina, let's uh, let's move to, to Riyadh. Obviously, for the Saudis, too, there's a, there's a lot changing. I mean, they're stuck in this sort of unwinnable war in, in Yemen. Uh, they don't like the idea of the U.S. returning to the nuclear deal with with Iran, but they can't really obstruct it, and they're facing this this really deep anger in the U.S. at at, at what's happening in Yemen, and especially at the the killing of journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi that you talked about earlier. How's the Saudi government? How does Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman? You know, how is he looking out at the region now? So Saudi Arabia's priorities in its foreign policy are different to the Emiratis, and that's why you've seen tensions amongst themselves. There, um, along with Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia is, you know, one of the main regional hegemons. And um, as a result, Iran is the single biggest foreign policy threat to it. Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman in particular firmly believes that Iran is the greatest threat that Saudi Arabia faces. Um, In the same way that the Emiratis believe that actually Islamism is the 
more important threat that they face. So for Riyadh, the objective is to contain and roll back Iranian influence in the region and to ensure that the U.S. remains engaged in the region and committed uh, to defending the Gulf Arab countries and, and Saudi Arabia in particular. They too, the Saudis as well, have become more assertive over the course of the last little while. That's very much tied to uh, uh, MBS's rise um, and also the perceived U.S. disengagement from the region, irrespective of whether that disengagement actually happened or not. Um, But as you mentioned, they are facing uh, greater difficulties. They are bogged down in Yemen. They can't seem to find a way out, achieve their objectives in the way that the Emiratis did. Um, The Houthis are stronger and in fact um, are becoming stronger. So there's less likelihood of of reaching a durable agreement with them, which which means that Yemen is kind of turning into their Vietnam right now. Uh, And so they're looking for a face-saving way to get out which might make them more amenable to talks, but the problem is it's not making the other side more amenable to talks. Their involvement in the region has been more clumsy than the Emiratis has been. Uh, and their their call for, for example, the Trump administration to help it contain Iran has also been more clumsy because as a result of maximum pressure, we've seen a cornered Iran that is more willing to lash out in the region, which creates more problems for the Gulf Arab states. Uh, on top of all of that, the Saudis are facing uh, more internal troubles compared to a country like the UAE or Qatar, for example. Their economic crisis is is more severe because of the price of oil. They have the falling price of oil. They have less money. Um, They are spending more as they become more involved in the region. And they have a larger population that is used to lavish government spending to to maintain their lifestyle. The only upside to all of this, well, from their perspective, is that actually internal support for uh, MBS is actually quite high, largely because of his um, on-the-surface reforms. These are reforms that for Saudis have been quite important, things like allowing women to drive, uh, opening up the space for for cultural events and entertainment. It doesn't make Saudi Arabia more democratic, but it does make it freer in certain areas that are quite important to Saudis. Um, So he's managed to maintain a certain level of support domestically all the while we look at him from the outside as somebody who's really struggling with Saudi foreign policy. So interesting. And I mean, Dina, you talked a little bit about how the Saudis view US reliability and this sense, whether real or not, that the US is sort of disengaging. And this started under under Obama, I guess, with the with the sort of US's refusal in Saudi eyes, refusal to back up uh, President Mubarak in Egypt. Uh, and, and some of the other leaders that were toppled by the revolutions. But even under Trump, I mean, it, you know, he, he sort of threw his weight behind the Saudis. But it, when it really came to the crunch uh, and the Iranians, uh, by all accounts, attacked uh, this sort of Saudi oil infrastructure, the U.S. was nowhere to be seen. You know, how, how is how is Riyadh sort of calibrating to this sense that its alliance with the U.S. isn't as you know, solid as it used to be, that the U.S. isn't going to be as, in Saudi perceptions, isn't going to be as involved in the region as, as it once was. The Saudis are keen to build uh, their own domestic ability to face 
these security concerns. But they also know that that's going to take a while because uh, traditionally they've relied on the U.S. to do it. So they're diversifying their security, basically. Um, they are looking east, like many of the countries in the region. They're building ties with countries like Russia and China. And these ties are you know, political, economic, military, um, multi multiple levels, basically. Uh, and, and they're just ensuring that they are no longer just reliant on the U.S., because the U.S. just isn't a reliable partner for them anymore. Do you think, Dina, that... Uh... Riyadh has sort of accepted the idea that the U.S. might get back to the the nuclear deal with Iran or it feels it can do anything to, to stop that or, or how, how is it viewing the potential of the of the deal? I think the uh, the Saudis think that a return to the nuclear deal to the original nuclear deal is inevitable. Um, despite the the slow start that we've had to this to these. Yeah, I wish we thought that. <laughs> Absolutely. So so it doesn't matter that the Biden administration has taken this long to come back to the negotiating table, um, actually not technically directly with Iran, but indirectly with Iran to discuss a return to compliance for both sides. The um, the Gulf Arab states and the Saudis in particular, I think, think that it's it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time for them. Despite all their public statements and rhetoric and and lobbying against uh, the deal to begin with in 2015, but now a return to the deal, the nuclear deal really isn't their concern. The nuclear file is not the thing that bothers them the most. Um, it what bothers them the most is what Iran does in the region. It's the Iranian threat as a whole. It's Iranian proxies and Iranian spread of influence um, all around them. And, and it's and Iran's involvement in Arab affairs. So for them, the nuclear deal enables that. Um, again, this is how they see it, even though it might not be true. Um, and, uh, and as a result, it is the, a bad first step but ultimately, if the Biden administration returns to the deal um, and Iran returns to compliance, then what they're going to push for, and in fact, it's what they're pushing for now, is a recognition that the nuclear deal only dealt with one small issue that they weren't really fussed about, um, that what we really, really need to deal with is what Iran is doing in the region. And so we need to absolutely focus our efforts on a dialogue on regional security and on ensuring that, that that's how we contain Iran. Isn't that, though, sort of widely recognized now in, in Washington as well, that, that in fact the nuclear deal should be a starting point for a conversation about Iran's role in the region and its regional power projection? If that's the case, are the Saudis prepared to sit down with the Iranians and talk about what the Iranians are doing in parts of the Arab world? I think the Saudis want a discussion on regional security, but I'm not sure um, that the Saudis, and actually the Emiratis as well, to be fair, really know uh, what they would be willing to give up and compromise on in order to reach a deal with the Iranians on regional security. So there is a desire to resolve the Iranian problem in the region, but there's not much thought being given to um, how uh, we can resolve that problem other than sitting around a table and talking. Um, the Gulf Arabs have traditionally asked for Iran to unilaterally remove itself 
from Arab affairs as a precondition for any talks. So not even as the result of, but but even before we get to the table to talk about um, uh, the, the problems that they have in the region. And of course, from Tehran's perspective, that's a non-starter. Um, so I do think that the Gulf Arab states need to put a little bit more thought into what this kind of dialogue would look like, because we're getting to the stage where we're going to have to do it. So what would this dialogue look like? What are they willing to compromise on? What are they willing to... Uh, accept. So, Dina, we've talked a lot about the perspective from from Riyadh and from Abu Dhabi. What should we understand about the perspective of the of the Qataris? What what do they see as uh, the advantage of this of this new uh, potential detente? And what are they looking for uh, moving forward? Historically, Qatari foreign policy has been a little bit more local um, than than some of its uh, GCC allies. Uh, and it was only with a change in leadership in the mid-90s that it became more international and more ambitious, where the Qataris um, were keen to become mediators in the region. And uh, and that's when they started developing their Al Jazeera network as well. Um, they've had several disputes with their GCC allies um, throughout the years. Uh, they are less hardline, as it were, than, than Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis on things like Iran. Um, And much like the Saudis and the Emiratis, again, since the Arab Spring, they've seen opportunities in the region. And so they've expanded their reach and their influence in the region. Where they differ from the Emiratis in particular is that they were very pragmatic from the start after the Arab Spring. So when they realized that um, they were overstretched uh, or that they weren't necessarily getting the results that they wanted, they pulled back. Um, and they pulled back a lot faster than uh, than the Emiratis. The Emiratis are only thinking about it now. Um, as a result of the rift, uh, this assertiveness that we see in the rest of the region has very much become entrenched in Doha as well. I don't think that we're going to see Doha pulling back uh, from this assertiveness anytime soon now, uh, because simply it's realized that it can manage on its own. It's emboldened, it's confident, much like the UAE is. Uh, as a result of the rift, it had to build new bilateral links to other countries. It had to diversify its security and trade links in a very short, high-pressure time. Um, it had to make itself more attractive to the West and to Asia. Um, and so the rift really forced it to, to carry out that reckoning, that, that reassessment that the Emiratis are now carrying out, um, the Qataris kind of had to do it in 2017 because they were suddenly cut off from their closest friends. And um, when you talk to Qatari officials, for example, they say, you know, the, the rift was devastating for Qatar economically, psychologically, um, but ultimately it's ended up being a good thing. Uh, Doha has learned its lesson that even its closest allies can't be counted on. So basically, it had to chart its own path. And that's exactly what it's done. Uh, So, Dina, we haven't talked about Oman, Bahrain and Kuwait. Uh, What should we know about their position and their view of the of the rift and its aftermath? So for Oman, uh, Bahrain and Kuwait, I would argue that they basically followed uh, the 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 line that they've followed more generally in their foreign policy, even during this rift. So the Bahrainis uh, followed the Saudis quite closely. Uh, they always have, uh, and and by the looks of it, they 
kind of always will. The Omanis and the Kuwaitis were very, very nervous as a result of this rift. They've always sat in the middle. Um, they have, for example, always been uh, much more open to talking to the Iranians. Um, and so we're nervous about what this rift and, and what one of the 13 demands on Qatar, which was to break off ties with Iran, what that would mean for them. Because Oman has always charted a pretty independent foreign policy and, and has always had good relations with Iran. And Kuwait, a little bit more of a bumpier ride, but ultimately they were happy to continue dealing with the Iranians. Um, and, and in fact, they felt it necessary. They have a pretty hefty Shia constituency domestically, so it's important for them to have good relations or at least manageable relations with the Iranians. Um, so both of those countries were very nervous as a result of the rift. They tried their hand at mediating between the two sides, but I think they gave up relatively quickly when they saw that it wasn't really going to lead to anything. So I think today they're uh, reassured, um, relieved, uh, but also concerned that uh, that the real um, concerns of that the real reason why this rift happened wasn't really dealt with as a result of the Al Ula agreements. So, Dina, let's, uh, if we can, take a, a step back and ask you to reflect on the last sort of couple of decades. Obviously, they've seen these huge changes in the region, the, the, the Iraq war, which sort of led to this dramatic initial dramatic expansion of Iranian influence, the Arab revolutions, and then, then the wars, the nuclear deal, which, as you say, the Saudis saw as sort of further increasing Iranian power projection in the region. Then you had Trump, which appeared to shift the balance back. And all the while, this sort of perception of the US disengaging under both Obama and Trump. And now you've got Biden and and the sort of gradual change that's coming related uh, to, to oil and the sort of economic model of the of the Gulf monarchies. H- how do you see they've they've adapted and, and sort of positioned themselves for the future? The region has gone through a number of, of pretty hefty shifts over the course of the last few decades. Uh, So if we go back as far as the Iraq invasion, you had the removal of of one of the Gulf Arabs' major uh, rivals, uh, a real threat, Iraq. Um, And so as a result of that, the region became bipolar. Um, It was characterized by the Iranian-Saudi rivalry. And the smaller Gulf Arab states largely deferred to to Riyadh for for foreign policy decisions. So that was what we saw in the the uh, post-Iraq invasion. And then you have another massive shift in 2011 with the Arab Spring. This is largely a result of two things. I think the first is opportunity. As regional powerhouses fell throughout uh, throughout the Middle East, they left a power vacuum and the Gulf Arab states were well-placed to fill them in. And the second thing is fear. Um, what happens in a region where the powerhouses fall? Uh, yes, there's a power vacuum, but it also puts you know their own situation at risk. Um, in the region, it opens up space for them, yes, but it also opens up space for Iran and for Islamism and Islamist groups, um, which is why for them it was so important to uh, to increase their influence and to and to fill that that power vacuum that was left in the region. And then the context, of course, is this perceived U.S. withdrawal from the region. It doesn't matter that it didn't actually happen on paper uh, or on the ground. Ultimately, you know, the U.S. wasn't going anywhere. It didn't matter because um, the Gulf Arab states saw or perceived the U.S. as leaving the region. The U.S. was not reliable um, in Egypt. And, And again, the Trump administration 
He offered some temporary relief because it seems like he was throwing his weight behind the Gulf Arab states. But we have to remember that even Trump from the beginning was saying things like allies have to be paying for themselves. We shouldn't be responsible for them. And then you have the nuclear deal, the final nail in the coffin. They really saw it as, a, as an instance of, of American uh, abandonment of, um, of its Gulf Arab partners. And so they really took it to heart. As a result, uh, they're all more assertive. Uh, they're all working uh, hard to develop their indigenous infrastructure, uh, whether it's you know for security or, or or building up their military capabilities, and they're all diversifying their sources of security, uh, their trade links, their political ties, uh, and they're no longer just reliant on the U.S. Uh, they really are looking elsewhere. Um, they're also just being a lot more active bilaterally. Uh, so whereas before they would defer to Saudi Arabia for most foreign policy decisions, today um, they're pursuing their interests individually. And that's how they're adapting to this new environment that they're facing. Dina, if we just bring it back to, to where we started and you go, we go back to the GCC spat, it hasn't really resolved this sort of core issue between the Emiratis and the Qataris. Do you think there's any way of getting at that dispute so had you asked me this question before the rift, I would have been a little bit more optimistic. I would have said there's more of a chance of them uh, being able to resolve their differences just because their differences are being aired behind closed doors. So there's more scope for them to find a solution and, and talk each other down from the positions that they're in and, and have other countries in the GCC talk them down from the positions that they're in. Today, I'm a, I'm a lot more pessimistic. Um, again, by virtue, because of the rift, uh, the Qataris are bolder, um, they're more defiant, they're more set in their ways, um, they're less likely to be amenable to, to Emirati demands. And, and actually the same could be said of the Emiratis. They're, they're emboldened, not as a result of the rift, as a result of other dynamics. Um, they're tougher, um, they're adamant about their anti-Islamism, um, similar to, to how the Qataris are adamant about helping Islamic groups in the region. Um, so I think that for the foreseeable future, um, we're going to find ourselves in, in a situation where no matter what happens within the GCC, whether they are able to regroup, probably not to the same level as they had earlier, but at least, um, I mean, before the rift, but at least to a certain extent, regroup um, uh, and, and work, be a functional entity. Um, I think... This dynamic, this competition between Doha and Abu Dhabi will remain, um, and I'm just not sure how uh, anybody inside or outside the GCC is going to talk them down from this position. Dina, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, Naz, an enormous amount there to reflect on. Absolutely. I, I thought it provided a perspective that, that we rarely get, and it gave us a sense of the, uh, particularly the view from, from Riyadh and Abu Dhabi, I think is critical for many of the conflicts that we've been talking about on the podcast the last few months. Um, I, I thought especially this idea of a kind of a stock-taking moment and really thinking about the Emiratis thinking about their foreign policy wins and losses, as it were, and and calibrating for the future, was it was a sort of fascinating way of thinking about what's happening there and it, the pessimism that Dina had about 
what this means for actual negotiation and the capacity of of the key players here to come to any kind of deeper agreement beyond what seems like a rather surface level uh, solution to this rift. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I mean, obviously, the rivalry between Iran on the one hand and, and the Saudis and you know the US, especially under 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 Trump, Israel as well. You know, obviously, that gets a lot of attention, and and, and that's right. I mean, it's this enormously destructive rivalry, fuel conflicts in in Yemen, Iraq to some degree, Syria. You know, and it, it is really important that if the US and Iran can get back to the nuclear deal, back to the JCPOA. That Washington also pursues, you know, some sort of regional settlement that that looks at what Iran is doing in the region, looks at what others are doing in the region. Uh, you know, and Dina talked about some of the challenges of doing that, but obviously that's really important. In some ways, though, the the GCC rivalry often gets less attention. You know, this this sort of rivalry that pits Qatar and Turkey uh, on one hand against the Emirates, Egypt, and, and the Saudis. Uh, you know, that, that we talked about so much. And that has also been enormously destabilizing. I mean, it's played out in a lot of places, as, as we talked about, Libya, uh, Egypt, Tunisia to some degree, within the Syrian opposition for some years, funding from different blocks, fueled, fueled division. And then we didn't talk about it much, but, but the Horn of Africa, it, it's also had this very destructive role, especially, but not only in, in, in Somalia. Plus, as Dina said, the, this sort of Emirati-Qatari spat due, you know, in large part to Qatar's support for the Muslim Brotherhood and political Islam across the region. You know, arguably that's the main factor, was the main factor in the GCC crisis itself. There may, of course, be places where it cools down because of local dynamics. You know, Libya, as we talked about, because there's this new unity government, Turkey got more involved, the Emiratis recalibrated. But but overall, you know, I think it, it, it seems likely that the that this sort of very bitter Emirati-Qatari dispute will continue to be a, a, a destructive force in regional politics for, for, for some time to come. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly-Nambi, and thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or a review. And we hope you'll join us again next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.